Everyone, uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here at New Life, and it's my joy and my privilege to be able to deliver God's word to you here this morning. Um, we're continuing uh, our series looking at the call and the life of Abraham in Genesis, and we're actually just about wrapping up this series. We're actually going to finish up next week, but if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up with me to Genesis chap- chapter 17, and today we'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. Again, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me, Genesis 17. 9 through 14. Otherwise, it'll also be projected uh, in front of you. But if I could kindly ask everyone to please, if you're able, stand for the reading of God's word as an act and sign of reverence to him. And this is the word of the Lord for us here this morning. Genesis 17, beginning with verse 9. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, as I said, we're continuing our series looking at the life and the call of Abraham and seeing how God had called Abraham out from his homeland, out of his comfort, to live a life of trust, to live a life of faith, looking to God's promises, and how we as believers here today, also disciples of God, are called to, in a similar way, live that same life of faith. Now, for those of you, if you weren't with us here last week, last week we looked at the beginning verses of Genesis 17, and what we saw in Genesis 17 was that after 13 years of silence, God had been silent for 13 years, after 13 years of silence, God finally reappeared to Abraham in this vision. And in this vision, what God did was he reassured Abraham of all of his doubts by repeating his promises to make him a great nation, by repeating his promise to give him innumerable descendants. And on top of that, what God did was he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude of people. So that every time someone mentioned or said Abraham's name, he would be reminded of God's faithfulness and his promise. That's what we saw last week in the beginning verses of Genesis 17. Now, as we turn to our passage here today, what we see is God takes it yet another step further. See, on top of strengthening Abraham's faith through giving him this covenantal name, what God does in our passage today is he strengthens Abraham's faith by giving him this covenantal sign, by giving him this visible and external sign that's going to remind Abraham, that's going to remind all of his descendants for generations and generations of God's promise and his faithfulness. And that covenantal sign that we see in our passage here today is the sign of circumcision. Now, as we look at this passage here together here today, There are three questions that I want us to consider and answer about and regarding circumcision here in our passage. First, we'll consider and ask the question, well, what exactly is circumcision? Secondly, we'll consider, what does circumcision point towards? What's the purpose of it? it? What does it represent? And then lastly, we'll consider together, how does it relate to people like you and I here today? So the three things, again, that we'll look at in this passage is first, what is circumcision? Secondly, how, what does it point towards and what does it represent? And then thirdly, what does it have to do, do with people like you and me here today? So let's begin with the first point. 
what exactly is circumcision? Well, if you read with me again verses 10 and 11 of our passage, God says to Abraham in verses 10 and 11, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, before we discuss specifically the practice of circumcision, we first need to consider broadly what is and what was circumcision in the Bible, in the Old Testament, just broadly speaking. And to put it simply, circumcision was one of the first sacraments that God had ever instituted in the Bible. Now, you might be asking the question, okay, what in the world is a sacrament? Well, see, all a sacrament is, it's an outward sign, an outward visible sign that points towards a spiritual reality. In other words, all a sacrament is, it's a visible external sign that points towards some sort of inward and invisible reality. And the thing is, with every sacrament, what you have in every sacrament is, the outward sign is always connected with the inward reality that that sign points to. Now, perhaps the best illustration of what a sacrament is is, something that all of us here in this room are pretty familiar with. And just looking around this room, I can't exactly see, but looking around this room, probably more than half of you are wearing one right now. And that's a wedding ring or an engagement ring. See, when people get engaged, when they get married, why do we buy really expensive, why do we exchange rings? Did you ever think about that? Why do we do this as humans? Why, why do we do this? You know, perhaps those of you who are history buffs or cynical people, you might say, well, it's because, you know, in the early 1900s, the De Beers company had this monopoly on the diamond trade in Africa and that they created a whole industry from it. But I think for most of us, we would probably agree and answer that the reason we do things like wear, buy, and exchange wedding rings is because those rings symbolize something. They mean something. And not just, this is how much, you know, money I think you're worth. See, the reason that people give engagement rings or wedding rings is because the ring is an outward symbol, a visible outward symbol of the couple's inward devotion, love, and commitment to one another. In other words, there's a connection between the ring itself, which is literally just a piece of metal and a rock on it, and the thing that the ring points to or signifies, the relationship, the love between two people. And in that way, wedding rings, engagement rings, they're sacramental. They're sacraments. And that's the first thing that we learn about circumcision in this passage, that it's a sacrament. It's this outward visible sign that points towards the spiritual reality of God's covenant relationship with Abraham and with all of his descendants. That's the first thing that we learn here. But now, if that's what circumcision is, just broadly speaking, that it's a sacrament, what exactly is and what exactly was circumcision? Now, <laughs> this is a part of the sermon <laughs> where I will graciously spare the New Life kids, the New Life youth teachers from having to answer any difficult or awkward questions later. But here's what circumcision is. Even before God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision was actually a widely practiced procedure in the ancient Near East where a knife or another sharp object would be used to cut off the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. And so for those of you, if that's your first time learning what circumcision is, Yes, circumcision is bloody, it's gruesome, it's uncomfortable to, I'm sure, have done, it's uncomfortable to talk about, it's intimate, and it's weird. And see, what happens is, in the pagan cultures, circumcision was typically performed either during puberty, as a mark of, you know, manhood, or circumcision in pagan cultures was, it was done right before a man got married as a sign that, okay, this man is now ready to bear children, he's ready to be a father. But see, what God does is he takes this already existing cultural practice 
and he makes it his own. He adopts it for himself. If you look at verse 12, verse 12 tells us that instead of commanding Abraham's offspring and his descendants to be circumcised you know, during puberty or right before they got married as a sign of manhood or strength, God commands them to be circumcised as infants on the eighth day after their birth. Now, brothers and sisters, at, at this point, some of us, you might be thinking, why out of all the things that God could have chosen in this world to be the sign of his covenant, why in the world did he choose this? And God, why, why in that particular place on the body? You know, just as a side note, for those of you who, if you may not be a Christian here today, I hope the only takeaway from this message, I hope your only takeaway is not, you know, if this is what God does to people that he loves, and this is what God does to people he wants to have a relationship with, I don't even want to know what God does to people he's upset with. But friends, again, this, the question is, why this sign? Why choose circumcision? Well, it's because in commanding Abraham to circumcise all of his descendants, all his offspring, specifically on the organ of procreation, it was God's way of saying to Abraham, Abraham, look, your offspring, every one of your descendants, they're not ultimately yours, but they belong to me. They are mine, and they're part, of, they're part of my plan. They're from my plan to bless you and to make you a great nation. In other words, brothers and sisters, circumcision was God's way of marking and setting apart his people, people that belong to him for himself. It was a way of God marking and identifying his own people. And so if that's the case, if circumcision was a sacrament, this outward sign that pointed towards spiritual realities that God used to mark and set aside his people... Well, then the question is, okay, what spiritual, what inward realities does circumcision point towards? And this brings us to our second point. You know, if you read through the entire Bible, if you look at all the passages that talk about circumcision, theologians almost unanimously agree that circumcision ultimately pointed towards two things. The first thing that pointed towards what was known as circumcision of the heart. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, this is hundreds of years after Abraham's life, after all of his offspring and descendants, they're finally freed from their captivity of the Egyptians, what God does with Abraham's descendants is he takes them to the wilderness and he renews all of his promises with Abraham's offspring in the wilderness. He, makes, he renews his covenant, he renews his promises with them. And what God commands Abraham's descendants in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, is this. God says in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Circumcise therefore not the foreskin of your flesh, but the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn towards me. Several chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God then promises that he's going to be the one to do this. He's going to be the one to circumcise their hearts. And he says in Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, brothers and sisters, what, what does all this mean? Well, see, what it means is what does it mean to not only have a circumcised flesh, to be circumcised in your flesh, but to have a circumcised heart? You know, once pastor, one pastor, he once described it this way, and he said, to have a circumcised heart is when what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same thing. When, you mo when what you most ought to do because you belong to God and what you, what you most want to do because you know you belong to God are one and the same thing. See, brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, God did not care so much about the physical markings that were on Abraham or on all of his descendants, but what God cared about more was the state of their hearts and their allegiance towards him. 
In other words, what really mattered to God was not external conformity in going through the motions of circumcising their skin, but what mattered to God was inward devotion and purity to him and having a circumcised heart. That's what was important to him. That's what really mattered. Now, if you were to ask me which Disney movie best encapsulates what circumcision meant and what it meant to have a circumcised heart, the movie I would actually choose would be the movie Toy Story. Now, if you think about Toy Story, I don't know if you realize this or not, but in Toy Story, the main characters in Toy Story, they all have a sacramental sign that is sealed on their bodies throughout the entire movie. And that sacramental sign is these four small letters written in all caps, A-N-D-Y, Andy. See, writing his name on the feet of all his toys was Andy's way of marking, identifying, and setting apart his toys. From setting aside his Woody, his Buzz Lightyear, from all the other ones out there in the world, all the other ones that the kids had around him. But see, not only that, writing his name on his toys was Andy's way of pointing towards his relationship, his love and devotion for all of his toys, and vice versa, their love and devotion for him. And in Toy Story 2, for those of you who've seen it, if you remember the plot, Woody is captured. He's separated from Andy, from all the rest of the toys. And what happens at one point in the movie is this toy repairman is restoring Woody. He's touching him up. And what he does at one point is he paints over the Andy label that's on the bottom of Woody's boot with this fresh coat of brown paint so that it's gone. The Andy label's disappeared. Woody is restored back to factory default settings. He's unlabeled and he's unmarked. It's gone. And yet in the movie, as soon as Woody realizes what's just happened, what is his first initial response? I got to get back to Andy. I got to find a way to get back to him. I need to go back to him. Why? Because I know I belong to him. That I'm his and he's mine. See, that external label on the bottom of Woody's boot, it was just a picture pointing towards the relationship that Woody had with Andy. And see, so even what mattered in the end wasn't the label itself, but Woody's love and devotion. See, even though the label was removed, Woody still knew who he belonged to, and therefore what he wanted most was to return to him. And that's what it means to have a circumcised heart. When what you most ought to do and what you most want to do are the same because you know who you belong to. You know whose you are. That's the first thing that circumcision points us towards, a circumcised heart. Now, secondly, circumcision also reveals to us the ugliness and the penalty of sin. Now, if you think back again to specifically what circumcision literally is, the actual procedure itself, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us might think and wonder, why couldn't God just have told Abraham to, you know, just tattoo it on his arm or his leg or something in, instead, right? Why couldn't God have told Abraham, why don't you write all my covenant promises on the ceiling of your bedroom so that every time you wake up, you're reminded of my promises? Why specifically choose this ritual that is bloody, gross, intimate, and weird? And the reason that God chose such a bloody and intimate, gruesome ritual is because that was the point. See, circumcision was God's way of showing Abraham and showing us the reality of sin. That sin is appalling Sin is intimate, and that it's offensive. And brothers and sisters, that's something that I think a lot of us here today, we need to grapple and wrestle with a little bit more in our lives and our hearts. See, many of us, if you've grown up in church, you know, we know that we're supposed to 
hate sin. You know that, right? You know you're supposed to view and see sin as something that's offensive to God and it's repulsive and ugly and evil. It's bad. But I think what has happened to so many of us in the church in recent years is that, you know, we hate sin conceptually. We hate the idea of what sin is, right? We hate the sin that occurs out there in the world, all the injustice, all the wrongdoing. We hate it when we see sin in other people. But I think for so many of us, if we're honest, we don't really hate our own sins that much or as much as we should. You know, the Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, he once wrote this short little book on what it means to truly hate sin, to have the heart of God in you, to hate sin. And what he said in this book is this. He once wrote, if our hatred of sin be true, we hate all evil in ourselves first and then in others. He that hates a toad would hate it most in his own bosom. And what he means is this. Imagine if you hypothetically, let's say, had an extreme hatred of toads or frogs or other slimy amphibians, you would hate it if someone walked into a room with an armful of toads and walked right up to you or an armful of frogs, right? But what he's saying is what you would hate even more than that is if the frogs and toads weren't in someone else's arms or hands, but if they're all lying in your own. And brothers and sisters, the exact same true, the exact same thing is true when it comes to sin. If you truly hate sin, if you truly see sin as something that is appalling and evil and gruesome and as offensive as the idea of what circumcision is, then what you're going to hate the most is when sin is coming from your own hands, when sin is coming from your own mouth, and when sin is coming from your own heart. And so, brothers and sisters, the question for us today is, do you see sin for what it actually is? Do you view your sin as gross and as repulsive and appalling as the idea and the picture of circumcision? Or have you become accustomed to it? Have you become comfortable with your sin? Brothers and sisters, does sin ever, does it ever bother you anymore? When you think about when you just sinned or when you think about and reflect on your sin, does it bother you? And if it does, how much does it actually bother you? What the Bible tells us, friends, is that sin matters. It bothers God and that it bothers him, and that's one of the reasons why he specifically chose this bloody, gruesome sign of circumcision as the sign of his covenant to remind us of how appalling and offensive sin is. But friends, also to reveal to us what our sins deserve. And what do our sins deserve? Read verse 14 again with me. The very last verse of this passage we read, verse 14 tells us, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Circumcision reveals to us the penalty of our sins, which is ultimately to be cut off from God, to be cut off from his people, to be cut off from his presence, to be cut off from all of his promises. Now, just as the skin is cut off in circumcision, anyone who breaks God's covenant deserves to be cut off from him. Because sin is so gruesome, sin is so offensive, that's what sin deserves. And so circumcision, it reveals to us our need to have new and regenerated and circumcised hearts. It reveals to us the ugliness and the penalty of sin. But now as we move on to our third point, okay, what does all this have to do with people like you and me here today? How does circumcision relate to people like us sitting here today? And here's the answer. You know, although circumcision may no longer apply to people like us, people who are in the new covenant, which God's covenant with Abraham ultimately just pointed towards, 
The truth is, for believers in the new covenant like you and me here today, there is still a sign of the covenant that you and I get to receive, and there still is a way that God marks personally and identifies the people who belong to him, and that's the sacrament of baptism. See, brothers and sisters, if you didn't realize this, baptism, like circumcision, it's an external sign that actually points towards the exact same spiritual inward realities that circumcision did. Now, for example, like circumcision, baptism also points us towards the idea of transformation. You know, in circumcision, the picture is this cutting off of sin away from the heart, God performing spiritual surgery upon your heart. But in baptism, the picture is being washed and being purified and sprinkled clean, God performing spiritual purification upon your heart. You know, just like circumcision, baptism also points us to the penalty of sin. You know, the imagery, in circumc- the imagery of circumcision is someone being cut off because of their sin, cut completely. Yet the imagery in baptism is being drowned, drowned in the floodwaters of God's judgment, being overwhelmed and drowned by God's hatred and wrath against sin. But brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Baptism is not just a substitute for circumcision that, oh, like, you can choose to be circumcised or choose to be baptized. I'm sure all of us would choose baptism. It's not just a substitute for circumcision, but brothers and sisters, baptism, it's a new and a better sign that represents a new and a better covenant that God made with us in Christ. Because one, it's a sign that's no longer bloody and painful and gruesome because that price has been paid for us by Christ. But two, it's a sign that's no longer exclusive. It's a sign that's no longer exclusively for males who are blood descendants of Abraham's lineage, but baptism is a sign for people from every tribe, every nation, every people and tongue, male or female, who are Abraham's descendants, not by blood, but by faith. Brothers and sisters, in that way, baptism is a new, and it's a better sign of a newer, better covenant that you and I get to receive as those who belong to God. But brothers and sisters, this is the point. This is so important. This is the point. Like circumcision, baptism alone, baptism by itself, the act of you being baptized alone, it doesn't accomplish anything on its own. Because what matters more than a circumcised or a baptized body is a circumcised or a baptized heart. And so brothers and sisters, the question is, how can you and I How can we get that? How can we get what circumcision and what baptism point us towards? This new circumcised heart where what we ought to do is the same thing as what we want to do. And the answer is this. If you still have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, this is what Paul writes to us. And he says, In him also... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What is Paul saying here in Colossians 2? Well, see, what Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian, you've already been circumcised in your heart by the circumcision of Christ. Now notice, he doesn't say in Colossians 2 that when you become a Christian, you find a new heart or you you develop a circumcised heart on your own. But he says, when you become a Christian, you get a circumcised heart, you receive a circumcised heart by and through 
the circumcision of Christ. Now, what's that? What, what is the circumcision of Christ? What's the cross? The circumcision of Christ is his cross. Because, brothers and sisters, when you look at what circumcision is, when you look at what baptism is, and what both of them point towards, when you look at that, and then you look at the cross, you start to understand a little bit more clearly and deeply what was happening to Jesus upon the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus was experiencing the curse of the covenant. He was experiencing what it meant to be cut off, not only in his flesh, but to be cut off completely and utterly by God from his love, his presence, and his promises. See, on the cross, Jesus was experiencing what it meant to be drowned in the floodwaters of God's judgment, to literally be suffocating from sin and wrath against sin. He received the curse of the covenant that you and I all deserve. And brothers and sisters, when you put your faith in him, when you're looking at him upon the cross, you're seeing what Jesus did upon the cross, and you're even in the slightest moved by it to faith, moved by it to repentance, then brothers and sisters, you are already experiencing what it means to have a circumcised heart, a new heart that desires God. You're ex already experiencing what it means to be marked as one of, one of God's own that belong to him. Now, brothers and sisters, as we start to come to a close, let me just end with a couple of applications. You know, although baptism is the new way, the New Testament way, and the New Testament mark and sign that you and I get to receive as those who belong to God, the thing is, other people besides God, other people cannot see your baptism. In other words, you can't just walk into a room and look around and see, oh, these people here are all baptized, but these people aren't. I can clearly tell who isn't and who isn't. Other people cannot see your baptism. And so if that's the case, what other ways besides baptism, if any, does God mark and make identifying markers of his people? What other ways can people tell that you belong to God? Well, there's at least two other ways that the Bible gives us. The first is in, is in John chapter 13, verse 35. In John 13, 35, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he's going to be crucified, and he says to them, by this, all people will know, all people will be able to see and tell and know that you are my, disciple, you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, many of us, we are, for really sad and unfortunate reasons, we're all too familiar with body cams, with body cam footage these days, aren't we? Imagine for a moment, brothers and sisters, if someone were to place a body cam on you for an entire week, they place a body cam on you that recorded all the interactions, all the conversations that you had either with or about people in this church. And then after that week, they ran the tape and they watched it. What would that footage reveal? By watching that footage, would that person be able to see, man, this person really knows who this per Jesus person is. They follow him. They really love the people that Jesus loves. Or would that footage communicate and would it depict something else? Jesus himself tells us that one of the most clear and distinguishing markers of his people is the way we love one another in the church, is the love that you have for the people sitting around you here in this room. That's one of the clearest ways that God marks his people, and the way that you can tell that someone belongs to God and belongs to Christ. Now, lastly and secondly, one other way that God marks and identifies his people is found in Ephesians 5, verse 1. It's short, sweet, and simple, but this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says in Ephesians 5, 1, Therefore, 
be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, a second way that God marks and identifies his children and his people is through them bearing the family resemblance, the family image. You know, personally, on more than one occasion, people who know me decently well and people who have actually had the opportunity to meet my dad, they've mentioned to me on more than one occasion that I, I guess, resemble my dad in a lot of ways. The two most common that I've heard are, one, you both have a really loud, piercing speaking voice. Both of you talk really loudly. Your voice just penetrates through everything. You talk really loudly. And secondly, both of you are super competitive people. You guys are tryhards, both of you. And the first times I heard that, the first couple of times I heard that, I was, to be honest, a little bit kind of embarrassed. You know, I kind of brushed off saying, no, I'm not like that at all. I don't have a loud voice. I talk quietly. I'm not that competitive. I don't care about winning or losing. You know, as I've grown older, and as I've reflected just a little bit more on how much you know, I, I look up to and respect my own dad, my earthly father, I've realized even though those are small things that I may have just subconsciously developed or just imitated from him or taken from him subconsciously, those are things that I'm proud of because those are things that connect me with my dad. The fact that we share that mannerism or that trait or way of speaking or that resemblance. And brothers and sisters, this is the point. That's essentially what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5.1. When people look at your life, when they examine and they see your life, the way that you speak, whether loudly or quietly, the decisions that you make, the way that you use your time and your money and your resources, your energy, can they see the resemblance with your heavenly Father? Can they see that? Can they see the resemblance that you have with God the Father? Can they see the ways in which you imitate and you resemble his heart, his character, and his holiness. Brothers and sisters, as people who God has marked, as he has set apart and identified as his own by his grace and through the circumcision of Jesus, brothers and sisters, let us be imitators of our Heavenly Father to bear not only his mark upon us, but to bear his resemblance. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you so much for what the sign and seal of circumcision ultimately means and the sign and seal of baptism. Lord, that through it we're reminded of the holiness to which you are calling all of us here today to not only have marked or circumcised bodies, God, but to have circumcised hearts, to have hearts that love you and that are devoted to you and that seek you. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, that Christ has paid the penalty and the curse of the covenant for us that he has taken on, Lord, the wrath and the judgment against all of our sins so that we could be washed clean, that he was cut off for our sake. And Lord, as we think and reflect upon that, Lord, would you help us all the more to seek you in our lives, to desire you, to desire to be marked and identified as your children in our lives, that as other people see us, Lord, that ultimately they could see and know your grace working powerfully within us. So, Father, continue to remind us, God, of your grace and the calling that you've given us to be holy as you are holy. We love you and thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.